Welcome to the Suicide Prevention and Awareness Podcast, part of CBP's Shine a Light Suicide Prevention Program. Our guest today is Kara, who works in the Hiring Center, and Dr. Kent Corso, a clinical psychologist specializing in suicide prevention. Kara talks about her experience as both a loss survivor and as someone who has struggled with depression since an early age. Hi, and welcome to our monthly podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today and to our guest for being with us. Just a few caveats before we get going. I am a clinical psychologist, so I am a doctor, but I'm not the doctor for our guest. This isn't therapy or counseling, nor is anything we talk about today going to involve or constitute medical advice. This is just a conversation. Another disclaimer is that suicide is a difficult topic to talk about. It's not one that we can discuss vaguely or indirectly if we hope to make a difference. So for our listeners out there, we are going to have a frank conversation today. If by any chance you have lived experience or you are triggered, if anything we discuss is upsetting or distressing to you, please reach out for help. Reach out to those who care for you and love you and reach out to those who you love. If you're a CBP employee or family member and you need help, you can always contact a peer support member, chaplain, or veteran support member, or you can reach out to our employee assistance program. If you are not a CBP employee, you can always call 1-800-273-8255, which is the National Suicide Lifeline. Today, our guest is Kara. Thanks so much for being with us, Kara. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are? My name is Kara. I've been a federal employee since July of 2017, and I do uh, hiring stuff in Minnesota. Thanks, Kara. And since 2017, you've been working for CBP, is that right? Correct. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on the Suicide Prevention Podcast this month is because you are someone who has been around a lot of suicide over the course of your life in various ways, various contexts. In that sense, we would call you a loss survivor because you know loved ones who have died by suicide. At the same time, it gives you a unique perspective. And so we would love it if you'd share that with us. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with my maternal grandfather. He committed suicide in 1950. My mother was eight years old at the time and she had two older siblings. And so my own depression started when I was 10 years old, which is, you know, young, but, you know, especially in this nowadays in this age, when we've got these pandemic kids with my own daughter has anxiety, you're seeing it earlier. If you know what you're looking for. Right. In, in fact, we're trying to find it earlier. We're trying to look upstream so that we can sort of nip it in the bud, either prevent it or get people involved in, in treatment earlier. So my depression started when I was 10 and my mom, who was a behavioral health social worker for one of the largest counties in our state, didn't see it, didn't recognize it. She had the blinders on. I came home from a sleepover and I didn't have a lot of friends when I was a kid because I had the frizzy hair. I had the divorced parents. And at that time, it wasn't as common as it became. And so the rumors were that if you hung out with me, your parents would get divorced. Plus with the frizzy hair, it did not, did not really well. Yeah, right. Kids can be mean. Yeah. So it was, I think I was just kind of born genetically prone to get that depression. So in that old neighborhood, 
my aunt was dying of cancer. My family was in extreme turmoil because she was kind of the glue that held us all together. Uh, we had my mom's best friend who was a Vietnam vet who went through a couple of tours, got exposed to Agent Orange. He was dying of cancer. Plus, we had three other church members that I had known my entire life that were dying of various illnesses. So lots of relationship difficulties, both socially for you, but also within your family, a lot of illness and sort of pain associated with that, maybe even grief. A lot of it, right? So I came home from that sleepover and we had water beds because this was the 80s and they were still some of the best beds around and fight me on it any time. Mine had broke and it had leaked. And my brother said, well, that was your fault. Oh. And I was already beating myself up enough. So that was the feather that tipped me over. Oh. And I ate a peanut butter and apple butter sandwich. Mm-hmm. And then I took 30 aspirin. Wow. Four out, uh, it was seven hours later, my mom called me from the hospital and I broke down and I told her what I did. And she screamed, what? Raced me home took me to the hospital, which is, of course, the same one in my neighborhood mm-hmm. now. And it was the one I was actually born at. And they gave me charcoal, finally started throwing up, talked to the psychiatrist, and he said, take her home. She's going to be okay. Just get her the help. And my mom pulled really hard away from me. And it took me a long time to finally put that into perspective because she was back to being that eight-year-old girl who lost her dad. And you don't talk about those echoes of loss unless you're willing to talk about your own experiences with depression with suicide with others and even within your own family because i found extended cousins you know and you know both my dad and my mom's side that when we talk about it openly it it just breaks down that barrier and it becomes okay to talk about So what you're saying is not only by talking about it more, does it break down barriers, break down stigma, sort of makes it okay, makes Mm -hmm. it feel not better, but it softens it a bit. It also sounds like what you're saying is the more you talk about it, the more you learn other people who have been uh, affected by it. Well, and then, you know, you talk about ways in which they found help and how you found help. It took me uh, over a year after I tried to kill myself to forgive myself for trying to kill myself. And then after that became the work of, okay, bad things are going to still keep happening in my life. What am I going to do to try to cope better when I'm dealing with these things, especially when you're experiencing something for the first time and it's weird and you don't necessarily have those built-in coping skills. So that's where that journey really started with me when I was, when I was about 15. And, and let me go back for a minute. You mentioned having to forgive yourself. Could you talk a little more about that? The way I'm kind of built I don't live with regrets because regrets are something you can't go back and change. But forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. And if you can forgive yourself for being so hurt and broken and not knowing where the light is and wanting to be be a part of that light and hope, it's easier for me to move forward. And that's really what I needed to do to forgive myself is to find a way to move forward and accept the fact that I was really broken. And I needed help and I didn't know how to ask for it. That takes a lot of guts to really accept that and own that. And I did it at 15, which is really weird because you're not supposed to be that aware at 15 for a lot of people. That is a big deal at age 15. Do you feel like that helped you grow up faster? 
oh, everything helped me grow up faster. I didn't have a choice. I was a latchkey kid of the 80s. It was what we did. And, you know, and then talking about it with some of the closest people that I knew that, you know, kept it quiet. So not everybody knew those one or two close friends that you could have that conversation with. And I had a church youth group that I'm still friends with those people to this day. We have our own little side chat. I mean, it's been amazing to still have that support all these years later that have been through me, been with me on that journey. And I, and I do still work with it. It doesn't mean depression hasn't crept back up, but I talk about it. My spouse is an amazing person who we check in. And if he thinks I need help, he'll tell me. If he thinks I'm doing okay, he'll tell me. You know, he's, he's my gauge. So what you're saying, Kara, is you've got uh, loved ones who help give you feedback regularly. In other words, something to the effect of, hey, you don't look so great today, or hey, it looks like you're struggling today, or hey, you don't seem like yourself. What's going on? How are you doing? So just sort of checking in with you. They do. My husband, I tell right away when something big happens before I tell anybody else because, you know, he's my rock. And he does the same with me. With our own family dynamics, with his family and mine, we're on the same page. So <laughs> it really helps. You can't ever not appreciate that a level of support in a partner. Absolutely. And, and it, it goes back to that idea that for all of us, if we all want to be a part of the solution reducing suicide, mm-hmm. we've got to be maintaining situational awareness. And when someone appears to be struggling, we have to sort of have the guts to ask an awkward question. Maybe you can tell us as someone who's not only a loss survivor, but a suicide attempt survivor, Kara, mm-hmm. how easy is it? And maybe you have to think back to being 15. How easy would it have been to volunteer that information? Hey, I'm thinking of killing myself versus if someone had reached out to you and said, is everything okay? Are you thinking of killing yourself? What's easier, raising that yourself as the person who's struggling or responding to someone who's reaching out to you to try to care for you? Well, because of the, the family baggage and the echoes, I couldn't verbalize it. Somebody needed to have asked me that. Okay. So because you've got that within your family, it felt even less okay to verbalize it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the resources back then weren't as good as what we have now. We keep honing these resources and there's multiple layers of it out there if you know where to look. And I think it's really important that if you see somebody in crisis, have more than one trick up your sleeve. Right. So when you say have more than one trick up your sleeve, it sounds like what you're saying is once you engage, don't just take no for an answer. Don't just say, oh, are you thinking of killing yourself? No. Okay, bye. Have a nice day. Right? Yeah. Then then you start down the conversation of, hey, but you know, you do seem depressed. Right. Explain your depression to me in your words, because depression looks different for every single person. That's right. And what I hear you saying, Kara, is make an observation. In other words, make it very personal. You're saying, hey, you look depressed or hey, you don't look like yourself. And that observation, we know it really reaches people and it can help them both open up, but also experience you as truly caring. Yeah. And, you know, and if they want to know what yours looks like, offer it up. Mine was Gorillas in the Mist, the Silverback Gorilla. When it was at its worst, it was that silverback gorilla beaten up on 14-year-old me. You know, now it's a really tiny little monkey that I just, you know, check in on from time to time to make sure it's not getting bigger. Right. So you've kind of kept it at bay. You've kept it minimized. And I don't mean minimize like you ignore it. 
What I mean is you found a way to cope with it so that it doesn't overwhelm you or overcome you. Yeah. So even since then, you know, as a teenager growing up, talking about it, things change, things get better in society and how we approach it and talk about it. It's not as taboo. We keep all those resources available. My experience with it has been we had a friend who in the Minnesota National Guard, because my husband's in Minnesota, was in the Guard before he retired. He was also in the Marine Corps. Our friend in the Guard was the guy who would send the packets after a suicide in the Guard. And we have one of the highest rates of suicide in, in, in the country for the National Guard in Minnesota. He would send that up to the TAG, the, the adjunct general. And so he would send up these, you know, three ring binders, these thick three ring binders of, you know, what happened, how we could have done better. And it took a lot of toll on him. And he's been a, a really big advocate for guard, for soldiers and mental health and getting them help when, they, when they're when they in that position. And because of the different roles my husband has played in various units, he's always had a hand in all of that too. So we've also been very supportive of the people who have gotten others help. And when he's come back after dealing with that, we talk about it. We, mm -hmm. I help him decompress and analyze things. So very supportive in both directions. And, and also what I'm struck by, Kara, is not only have you had a lot of suicide in your family, in your personal experience, but then your husband's career field, there's quite a bit of suicide among veterans and, and in the military. They say yep. uh, between 20 and 22 veterans die by suicide every day. And, and then, of course, you're saying you're in a particular National Guard unit or your husband is that that has higher rates of suicide. So in all of this suicide, how do you not succumb to becoming more depressed or being just a negative person or having it drag you down? So I volunteer a lot. Volunteering, you know, can also be a form of uh, self-help, right? So I put I try to put as much good back into the world as I possibly can. So I have volunteered with this unit. I'm still volunteering with this unit because I have a, a third or fourth something or other cousin who's in that unit. So I can still be there and help out. Right. I know of other leaders who have like every month on the 22nd, they do a suicide awareness post. I'm not that person, but I, I post periodically. I have a pinned post with resources. I bring up the conversation and, you know, I really make sure that people know if they want to talk, I'm there, their leadership is available. And if they have issues with their, you know, with a relative, come and talk to me. It's fine. I understand. And I'm going to be there just to support you and listen. And if I can't offer support any other way, I'm going to do it. Right. And so what I hear you saying is you offer support in whatever ways you can. And what that includes is volunteering. Yep. And that helps, it sounds like, boost your mood, but also make you feel like you're a part of something and keeps you positive is, is what it sounds like. It does. And that positivity has been really hard because I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, like most people who have really crappy skills when it comes to that, I'm one of them. So I've had to work really hard on my resiliency and trying to find ways to stay positive. Uh, a few years ago, actually more than 10 years ago, we went through fertility treatments, right? Mm. If you want to know what it's like to feel absolutely devastated, sit in the waiting room of a fertility clinic yeah. where nobody's talking and everyone's in the same boat as you. Right. And everyone feels horrible or broken. We all feel pretty, yeah, yeah. We're very, very broken in that room and coming out the other side. And then on top of that, you know, you're throwing in hormones in your body and it's just horrible. So it totally screws everything up. So that was a really hard time 
or again, my husband kept me in check and we talked about it. We had a couple of other people who have experienced infertility mm-hmm. and we were able to talk about it to move forward. And even now today, I mean, I still offer that support to people because mm-hmm. it's hard and you need to have somebody who understands how hard it can be. Right. Right. So not only just supporting people with volunteerism, but also supporting people in your personal and professional environments, sort of looking out for one another. Yes, exactly. We, we, we all need to have that person who's got our back, even if we're not close to them and they may not always be the right person. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even if the wrong person sees that you're struggling, they can turn it to somebody who can be the right person to help you with that struggle. Right. Well, Kara, I just have one or two more questions. Going back to your attempt, I just want to check in with you on something. The research shows that the majority of people who attempt suicide once and live will never attempt again. And it sounds like you fit that description. Is that right? uh, That is my goal. Okay. I I never, ever close the door on that because I know better. In other words, you don't want to, you want to be very careful with yourself. You don't want to assume too much. Is that right? Yeah. I don't want to take anything for granted. Great. Got it. Right. That's a good way to say it. Not taking it for granted. Many people report when they wake up in the hospital or they sort of come to consciousness and realize that they had attempted and lived through it. There's something called the post survival response or the post attempt response. And it's sort of, oh my goodness, thank goodness I'm alive. That was a mistake. Or it's sort of among a small, small percentage of people, it's something that's sort of the opposite. Like, wow, I'm so worthless. I couldn't even end it. Do you recall having a response like that? I just remember how much everything felt like I was constantly on pins and needles afterwards. I was so feeling so much that I had forgotten to feel that it was trying to come out. And it literally felt like I was constantly being stabbed with, with, with needles. Interesting. So that was a physical sensation, not an emotional sensation. Yeah, that's what I had. It was really weird. Interesting. And as you think, you know, hours later, a day later, was there a mindset that that came over you that was sort of like, well, look, that didn't work, so I'm not going to try it again? Or was there was there any sort of resolution to that as in, I'm going to think twice before doing that again? Nope, it, it didn't. It didn't come to me. Um, I felt really guilty because my aunt was dying at that time. Ah. She died 24 days after I attempted my suicide. Okay. So I attempted it on December 5th because I still remember these dates and she died December 29th. And I felt really bad that I put that emotional pain on her when she was dying at that time. I had like, and part of, like I said, when I forgave myself over a year later, I was forgiving myself for that too. Mm-hmm. So the, and, and the forgiveness process certainly takes a while. That's what we know. It's not an overnight thing. And so that that's probably after you forgave yourself is when maybe you felt that sort of a resolution. Probably, but it took a year. And so I'm not, I was not in, you know, the normal responses, but we need the non-normal responses to understand it better. Of course we do. And not, we can't put, you know, sort of paint everybody with the same brush or accept everyone to respond the same way. We're, we're humans and there's a diversity of humans out there, right? So yep. one other question before we go. So you mentioned you still struggle with depression and, and um, you don't take anything for granted and your daughter has anxiety. Given all that, have you had any career impact for struggling with depression, seeking help for depression, anything like that? Have you not been promoted, been fired, been demoted, been put on notice? No, I, I'm, I'm also incredibly stubborn. 
So sometimes stubbornness <laughs> can be harnessed for the power of good. So when I have needed help, I have gotten help. And if somebody doesn't support me, I will tell them off. Got it. So you put yourself as a priority, your health as a priority, and you're quite assertive with ensuring that that gets taken care of when it's needed. Yes. And that's, you know, also like my, with my daughter, with her anxiety, you know, talking with her doctor, getting the diagnosis, keeping a watchful eye and checking in on her mm -hmm. is what's going to make the difference with her. And I know that. Sure. Because anxiety and depression are, are cousins. Yeah, they are cousins. And, and so what you're trying to do is that same early intervention, early detection that we talked about earlier. Yep. And making sure that she goes through and she feels all the feelings she needs to feel and that we name them. Because if you don't go through those emotions and allow them to happen, it's just going to build up and spiral into something else. And I've learned that and I've learned not to do that, which is, you know. Right. Right. Ignoring problems doesn't really make them go away. Or just deciding you're going to deal with it later. Well, once later, you don't schedule later. You never schedule later. You never schedule later. That's yeah. a great quote. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us today, Kara. I think the way you put your health and mental health and family first is such a model. It makes you a role model. And I think that that's one of the things that the leadership of CBP has been pushing for the last year is that we have to continue shifting the conversation, shifting our habits, shifting how we approach work-life balance and making sure that we're putting our own health and mental health first so that we can be better parents, so that we can live happier lives, so that we can get out of life, whatever it is that we want to accomplish while we're on this earth. Yeah. And, you know, you think about it, all the mistakes we've all made in the past have turned into this future where we're doing a lot more good than harm. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to end today. Thanks, Kara. Appreciate you. Thanks. This is part of our ongoing podcast series for suicide prevention and awareness. If you see someone struggling, say something. Asking them about suicidal thoughts may feel awkward, but you can help reduce suicide risk at home and in the workplace by tolerating that awkwardness. Simply ask, how can I help? And then just listen to the person. Make sure you ask them if they're thinking of ending their life. It really does make a difference. Thank you again to our guests. I really appreciate you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll speak to you again on our next episode.